Hi, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. We're going to have some fun today because y'all know I like to cook, and this is all about food. <laughs> we are foodie people. <laughs> yes, yes. So I going to jump hope that you all are having an amazing sunday thank you as always for sharing the next hour with us and i'm going to get right into it so we have a we have quite the show for you today so pleased to welcome tanya hopkins who's also known as the food griot uh, she's a culinary historian and nonfiction storyteller a cocktail cognoscente i'm gonna have to ask her about that and creator and host of the food griot shows where she shares savory and sometimes sweet true stories behind the, uh, the makings of America's cuisines and culinary scenes. She helped co-fund the nonprofit organization, the James Hemming Society, with Chef Ashbel McLean and to uphold the timeless black culinary creativity that greatly influenced the development of American fine dining. Tommy is an active advisor on the Museum of Food and Drinks exhibition called the African-American Making the Nation's Table. She served as the foremost food historian for the best-selling celebrity chef cookbook, Carla Hall's Soul Food, and for Harlem Hops, the nation's first 100% Black-owned beer, bar, and restaurant. Can I have to ask you about that, too. Uh, Tanya was the first food historian showcased on the long-running, iconic ABC daily show, The Two. She teaches wine education at the Black Women-Owned Boutique Wine Shop in Brooklyn called Good Wine. She serves as the lead culinary history advisor for the Old Stone House of Brooklyn, and she works with many museums and cultural organizations throughout the region. Welcome to the show, Tanya. And where do you find time to do all that? Right. <laughs> right. Tanya, you're muted. Give me a sec. Let me see what's going to happen. There you all, you missed, all you missed was me laughing out loud to uh, <laughs> my question. Because I was like, you know, that is a good question. How do I? <laughs> You got a lot going on, lady. You have a lot going on. Yeah, I like to tell people, you know, there's no such thing as a magical negress. And now I'm like, maybe there is. Maybe okay. I, am. Yeah, I think you are. And there yeah. is such a thing. They're called mommies. So, <laughs> yes. They're called mommies. But um, I'm so glad to have you on the show. We had a, you know, a really great conversation on Friday. And I told you that I was going to tell you on the show and I'm going to say it now because I know my family and friends that are up here, they already know. I am a macaroni and cheese connoisseur. I can cook it and I can eat it. So with that being said, I want to know about all of the history of the collard greens because I'm telling you, Tony, you get on my page, you it's not going to be hard to find food up there that I don't cook. Mm -hmm. So and I, want, I want to know the history. 
And Donnie will tell you, will, will be the first one to tell you that I am also a mac and cheese connoisseur. Went to a restaurant with a cousin here in Maryland. They had mac and cheese on the menu. And I asked the waiter, who was African-American, is this the macaroni and cheese that your South Carolina or Georgia grandma would make? Or is this the stuff that's out of the box? The kind of noodles and, and like uh, soup? Powdered cheese, add water. Yeah. Uh -huh. Man, they, that mac and cheese came out and I sent it back. You I was like, like, you have oh, to. It was that bad. You were like, this is not my grandmother's mac and cheese, nor yours. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. But no, I know. It's, it's a sad truth of it all. It is, it's the sad truth of it all. How, <sighs> I mean, the Industrial Revolution was bad enough, which is how we get the boxed version, which is a totally different, mm. I don't want to call it a facsimile. It's some kind of, I don't know. The etymology of it is this mac and cheese that, that we, uh, generations of our families have been stewards of that we hold dear, but it, it does leaps over into a whole nother manifestation when it comes out that box. But uh, it, it really yeah. does. It, yeah. it's, it's disgusting. My, my mom, my sister doesn't make it. And my mother is just like one person said, how do you make it creamy? And I said, well, if I tell you, I'm going to have to kill you afterwards. So that's, oh, not, see. No, see. that's not going to work because I'm not trying to go down. So then, um, but my sister, she's not a cooker. Well, she wasn't. She's getting better with it now. But at first she wasn't when her boys were younger. And um, she made box macaroni and cheese one time and they looked at her and started crying. Cry Oh wow! Yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's not a game in my family. We do no, I know, and I worry that that's going to die off. I, not, you know, that's not a good word to use, but you know what I mean. I worry that over time, what's going to happen is people just come to accept the modern, simpler versions of things. You know, simpler. Um, you know, for the sake of convenience, because the, the the underlying culture of of American culinary, if you want to call it culinary culture, is convenience, comfort, ease, instant, push a button, and it's become that more and more over time. There's always, you know, divergent trends happening, but I really honestly worry that the stuff. I mean, I you know, I was born at a time where I knew relatives, I knew. Uh, my great grandparents, um, both my great grandmothers and um, great aunts and great uncles. People lived, you know, some people, there's some longevity in my family, people living into their uh, 90s and stuff. So I, I, I knew people who, you know, were born as, as early as 1898 or 1899. They, I might have been a teenager when they passed away, but it was like, but but that that's just like that's two centuries ago from now, right. and and what they embodied the way that they did things, you know, they call slow food and slow cooking today, or um, you know, returning to some of these older ways. I'm sorry, can you guys? Is that noise in the background? Can you hear you that? Don't even hear. Mm, I I hear something. You hear it? I hear uh, it. I'm, I'm there's someone. I'm in a. Uh, complex and there's someone in the hall vacuuming that I have no control over. Uh, you want me to switch to headphones? Will that oh, help? no, you're, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Okay. All right. Um, anyway, yeah, so, you know, it's not just like, and then some of the things are just so out of our control, right? Like, um, like, um, it's not just techniques. 
and it's also the actual ingredients and and powers that be when you know manufacturers and producers of things they change things they're businesses right so they want to save money and, and cut, you know and you know i'm somebody who reads ingredients on 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 packages and so sometimes stuff like I, I, you start to notice over time the butter gets replaced with hydrogenated oil in a in a in a recipe it's not really a recipe it's a formula uh, I'm so tempted to ask him to not vacuum this this floor right this second. <laughs> it's okay. You're good. You're good. Oh, I mean, if you want to put your headphones on, you can. If you think that'll cancel it out some. I don't know. I think it should. Hold on one second. Just, um, okay. just give me one second. You guys keep talking about the next recipe you want, mm. the next dish you want to interrogate me about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, again, the, you know, for, for me, and it sounds like it's the same for, for all three of us and for many of us, our generation, you know, I'm planting my flag in the, in the 50, you know, I'm 50 something years old. That gives you an idea of the generation I'm talking about. I grew up living in people's kitchens. So I had my, you know, obviously my mom was a cook, her, you know, her mother and her, my father's mother were cooks. Then we have the great grandmothers, because again, like Tanya, I'm the same. I was very fortunate and blessed to have at least two of my great grandmothers until I was a teenager. And provided that, you know, there wasn't grown folk talk happening, because, you know, in black households, when grown folks back in the day were having conversations, certain conversations, kids had to leave. It right. <laughs> was not for your ears. But if those conversations weren't happening, we were just hanging out in the kitchen. And that's how I actually learned how to cook was watching all of these women from three different generations cooking. And I started asking them questions. Why do you do this? Why do you have that? Why are these things paired? Why are those spices and not this spices? And to this day, the thing that amazes me the most is I never saw them with measuring cups or measuring spoons. Wow. And that's actually how I learned how to cook. They would have like their cook, their, they would have their little tumbler or their little glass. They would fill it up with either the dry ingredients or the wet ingredients that they needed. And they would just throw it in the pot, pinch of this, couple of pinches of that. That's also how I learned how to taste food. People in, when I lived in England, people thought I was odd because I would actually put the food on my hand and then take a taste to see if it was salty enough, too salty. They're like, no, just put the spoon in. I'm like, I don't want your germs. First of all, I don't <laughs> want your germs. <laughs> There are ways to do that. You just have to have a bunch of little spoons, a bunch of tasting spoons that you dip in one time, you put it aside. Professional kitchens can do that because they've got dishwashers, you know, human dishwashers and, you know, maybe more than one mechanical dishwasher. Home cooks are usually not trying to add dishes to the mix. So, but um, it's important to taste along the way. Yeah, but that's actually a question I wanted to ask you, Tanya. Is that actually um, kind of an African-American way of, tasting food that that you're cooking not to actually put this put a spoon that you just put in your mouth into what you're cooking but to actually put it because again i'm thinking about my great grandmothers i think they were the first ones i actually clocked cooking that way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no it is i don't know that no other culture does it but it's definitely an old school way of just kind of um uh, in a hygienic way, assuming that you're not, you know, you know, <laughs> doing this, touching everything else. But yeah, no, that's a really good point. There's so many little subtle things like that, which, um, which are it's so important to watch 
you know, a matter of fact, on earlier on Savory and Sweet today, Savory and Sweet, Food, History, and Culture on Word, <laughs> Progressive Black Media, Sundays Amen. at 9 a.m. <laughs> I can't go on with that commercial. But uh, Chef Ashville McElveen, who is the founder of the Hemming Society, who I stepped in to help co-found the, uh, the organi- organization years ago, um, was talking about that. He was talking about uh, learning, multi-sensory, three-dimensional learning. And when he was younger, cooking with a, a great aunt, I believe, and and he's looking at her, like, you know, explain things. He's so focused on her mouth, talking to him and listening to the words. And she was like, why are you looking at my mouth? Why are you not watching what I'm doing? And it kind of just like, took the blinders off of it. it was like a moment where he was like oh okay you know and fast forward that little boy you know became a, a celebrity chef and an important um culinarian carrying on making sure that narratives that that were almost lost seemingly lost lost don't get lost and get written back right. in that story yeah you so- and i were talking about the potato salad before and um i was saying how when my mom you know, when she leaves this earth, I won't have potato salad no more because I cannot affect it. But when you and Brian was talking about the tasting and, you know, on the hand, mm-hmm. that made me think of my mom because I'm going to tell y'all right now, my mother makes her potato salad in the sink. I'm talking back in the day, hands in the, you know, the whole things, mixing it in the sink, getting it all together, all of that. Y'all can say what you want. That's the best potato salad in the <laughs> <laughs> your mom probably still you know if she were still making it that's back when people sterilized their things and you know made sure everything's yeah. clean you know that's a whole nother i cannot wait to do an episode about cleanliness in the kitchen as being an actual step in the recipe in yes. you know in from a black cultural code you know again th- these are generalizations you can't say that about everyone but i do find a higher incidence of concern about did you wash your hands you know is that counter before you even even start to even uh-huh. dig into things, you know, is that pot clean? Is, you know, just the, this really attention to detail on cleanliness. And I'm not a recipe cook. I inherited uh, cooking skills um, passed down from my great grandmother, who was a direct descendant of plantation cooks from Maryland. And, but as a food historian and, and a culinary historian and researcher and writer, um, I'm surrounded by books. It's like, they're like reference material, pleasure reading, clues, crumbs, and blueprints, you know, and I do get ideas, but it's really hard for me to follow the recipe. But one thing I started to notice, I was like, when I first started reading cookbooks, I was like, well, where's the part about, where's the clean step? You know, I know, like, like washing, like washing meat. Again, that's something else that my British friends thought that I was absolutely crazy about. Is I would, even if it was organic meat, I would take it out of the wrapper, put it under the, you know, put it under the faucet, rinse, you know, really clean it well, and then I, mean, I would season it and start cooking salt it. Water. We would soak it in salt water and then rinse it, and then all this extra stuff that I guess is not necessary today. I guess maybe they're processing things differently. I don't know. But yeah, that's also a black thing, like cleaning the food products, making sure the area that you're cooking in is clean, just just basic things that I just found to be, um, I found it interesting as a young person a long time ago, uh, reading that, that that was just a given, you know, that you just mm-hmm. assume that people knew to wash the vegetables off or the, or whatever. So 
So my first actual question for you, and this is starting things off on a really simple kind of level. Can you explain to the audience what a griot is and what a food griot is? Something I made up. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> make the word griot. I'm putting the two together is, as a creative synthesis. I, I did not make up either words, obviously. But um, yes, griot is a word that uh, came onto my, my radar. Actually, the founders, the family that founded Word Radio, WURD, the president and CEO, she, she um, years ago, uh, when she started out in journalism, worked for a Black publication called, um, I think it was just Griot, G-R-I-O-T, not, not the same as the one today, that platform. And it was, um, it, it had it, Griot and it had to do with, oh, and then she moved on to uh, one that had to do with health and wellness, who cares for, for Black America. That was also a Black-owned publication. And I just remember, um, I think that might have been around the first time I was exposed to it. We also had some West African academic friends in my family growing up. I feel like somewhere between them and my college roommate who went off to, to take this job with Griot, I was like, what is this word that is coming up? And I found out that it meant storyteller, and uh, historian and raconteur, fancy French word for storyteller. And um, it also means poet and musician, and which which basically it's a storyteller in, through a creative medium, whether it's actual telling a story once upon a time or telling a story through poetry or through music or other ways. But the important thing is about making sure that information doesn't get lost. Like the, the keeping, making sure that information, that the right information gets transferred from one generation to the next. And um, when I found out that it was a word that was affiliated with um, the part of, of the continent of Africa that the majority of African-Americans descend from descendants of enslaved people, West African region, because it's, you know, it's a Creole, uh, African French Creole word. Um, and I was like, well, you know, this was before we had access to as access we have now to swabbing our cheeks and finding out exactly, you know, uh, where our DNA goes to. But I was like, well, um, I like that, and I also like the fact that um, it it speaks to the oral tradition of not just the the West African oral tradition of the griot, but also uh, how the oral tradition takes on a whole new level here when you know we are imposed imposed upon with with um, illiteracy, you know, by by threat of harm, you know, and death, um, not being able to, you know, legally read and write, and how getting word and the oral tradition uh, that that was already part of the cultural code of a lot of the people who were were uh, captured and brought here takes on to another meaning in terms of how we communicate and the orators that we are today, that, that cultural code of oration, whether it's preaching or rapping or, or, or being a poet or just a talker. Uh, um, when I used to do qualitative focus groups for, for uh, back when I was in corporate America once upon a time before I escaped, I remember uh, clients would be like, wow, is it me or do we never have to do a main, should we just do only black focus groups because they talk so much and the richness and the story and the emotion and the, and I was just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, just keep talking to everybody and pay attention to what you're paying attention to. But it's real, it's real. <laughs> but it's just, um, that's just, uh, uh, you know, it's a cultural thing and it just seemed right. And I just felt that we, um, 
I felt there were, there was a conspicuous absence in the mainstream as well as within our own culture of really understanding what a big deal our connection to American foodways uh, um, was and still is because of that that uh, in, in investment of energy and time and creation that the ancestors did, whether we are aware of it or not, right? Um, and then when I start to see, learn ways that we were somehow systemically cut out from, from um, knowing what we had done and, and, and benefiting from what we had done, I was like, wait a minute, hold it now, wait a minute. <laughs> so that actually leads me to my next question. I caught a video, of, um, it was a wonderful video um, where you were being interviewed and you mentioned something that really sent me down a, a thought spiral. So putting the 16, you know, putting the 1619 Virginia Africans just to one side for a moment, mm -hmm. thinking about the people, thinking about Africans who were brought here purposefully as slaves, mm -hmm. how, when they got off of the ship and they were sent to wherever it was they were going to be enslaved, how did they work out what foods to eat? Were they looking for things that were kind of looked comparable to what they knew back home? And then for things that were completely foreign to them, like corn, how did they learn to incorporate all of that, those different foods that were here into their diet? The fascinating thing about corn is that it was not um, foreign at all. Corn had been introduced to um, Sub-Saharan Africa, Western Africa, about a century before it was being used in uh, European um, culinary techniques, that pre-Columbian exchange of food that was happening, whether it was it was stuff that was happening in the, they came before Columbus camp, and as well as the role that um, Black Africans um, played with, along with the Portuguese and the Spaniards in, in things that happened here in the new world. So we start, we count from 1619, but if you recall in some of the, um, I, I believe Henry, Henry Louis Gates points it out in at least one of his specials, going back into the 1500s, when you start looking into the settlements in Florida and, and the Gulf Coast and Texas into Mexico and, and the role that African heritage people played there. And then uh, if you look at the work of Professor, Professor um, um, out of Rutgers, I'm blanking on his name right now, um, Ben Sertima, I believe, who there's a whole nother uh, camp in terms of like, yeah, and then they were trading even before Europeans. So the point is corn, uh, because this came up when I was researching the foods associated with Kwanzaa and had an opportunity to, uh, I'm told, was the first person who actually directly asked Dr. Milena Karanga about the foods associated with the holiday as, as he saw it, as he had conceived it. And corn was the first thing on my mind. I'm like, corn is, you know, it's a new world. And, and um, he provided some information along with additional research that I was like, oh, wow. So all of those, that, that understanding of corn meals, working with corn, all the many different corn cakes that happened in the very early, that was one of the rations. So there's a couple of things that are happening here. And let, let me back up. The slave traders, the the enslaved the slave traders, they had already, through their observational research and whatever, had a sense of the crops that they were interested in transplanting. They were they knew about the crops that different African ethnic groups um, 
uh, utilized or didn't utilize. Um, they there there was there was before the, the the transatlantic slave trade really becomes the the horrible monstrosity that it becomes there's trading and exchange happening with these african cultures and and uh portuguese in particular spanish dutch um and so they're they're paying attention because it's all about like ultimately where what am i going to where where to make money and profit so this stuff's all being thought through they're also thinking about you know, once the, the transport of captive Africans becomes the main product, they're also thinking about how do we keep them alive? How do we keep them at the minimal cost? How do we, what do we feed them? So, so they're paying attention to what people are already eating. They're substituting things. Um, you know, there's a nut, there's a goober, there's something very similar to the peanut that is not exactly the, the groundnut that, that is similar to the peanut, but they're not exactly the same. But I guess peanuts became cheaper or something. So they switch it to peanuts and then we adopt peanuts as, as something that um, we use the way we used groundnuts. Um, leafy greens, you know, are something that um, not necessarily the same exact greens that we're growing where they were coming from, but finding the um, the non-poisonous leafy green substitutes, um, adopting things like cabbage and um, other cruciferous greens. Collards originally come out of North England, I believe. They're not even, um, they're mm. not one of the African ethnobotany plants. Um, so if I can just jump in, just, a little, just. Yeah, so, so it's a combination of them knowing and, and deciding but then cornmeal becomes like the corporate food. It becomes the, the um, regardless of where the plantation is, whether it's the Caribbean or the, or the South, that becomes the ration that's given, that's handed out uh, pork and cornmeal. So was it a case of trial and error? Because I can imagine it's specifically something that looks similar, but is actually poisonous. I mean, that, that could have been quite deadly for them. It, it could have been, but um, we have to remember, you know, uh, uh, people who at the time would have been more, yes, out of their element, but also um, in tune with techniques like paying attention to what other living creatures are eating, not eating, avoiding, not avoiding, um, mm -hmm. you know, depending on at what point in the timeline and where, and, uh, you know, there were, there were exchanges with indigenous people. There were, there are, there are accounts of similarities of fishing practices with some of uh, the African groups brought here and the native uh, groups brought here. Um, you know, there some of them were shipped over there. there. So there's that whole untold story too, in terms of like what types of um, information and wisdom was being swapped or exchanged. But they arrived with a full-on centuries worth of familiarity with corn and the many different ways that it could be used and in uh, meal. And and they paid attention in terms of the leafy greens and um, and had to supplement those rations with hunting, fishing foraging and wherever possible, having their own gardens, growing things, um, because you, they, they just, yeah, feeding, feeding enslaved people was not always a priority 
how they were going to be fed was a priority. And this is a point that I want that I really like to raise, considering the time period when this all started. So I know we think in terms of like 17th century and 18th century science as being fairly primitive, and some of it was, but even the like the British Navy, for instance, they had already made the correlation between nutrition and scurvy. And they obviously wanted to stamp scurvy out because it was bad for them, for the people who served, served in the Navy. I struggle to understand how a plan, how someone who enslaved Africans didn't understand that labor-intensive work, and these people were working pretty much from sunup, from start, yeah, sunup to sundown, that nutrition, that good nutrition didn't play a part in some of their, and I'm not saying every enslaver was like this, but I'm reading accounts of those who, who were. How can you starve your workforce and expect them to work from sunup to sundown, unless you just don't care? Yeah, that's a really difficult um, question to address and one that comes up oftentimes. And yes, um, one of the reasons is that we tend to, um, you know, we have to keep in mind that you know, this goes on over the course of centuries. There are different geographies, there are different practices, but the places where that did happen, it was common, it was much more common. It was, food was used as a, um, I don't wanna say as a weapon, but it was used, it was just used to control or to incentivize or not incentivize. We had to basically, what happened? Oh. Um, you froze a little bit. Oh, I froze. Sorry, we had yeah. to take it upon ourselves. Um, um, yeah, that's the that's the, I I can't answer that question except that what baffled me, to be honest with you, is when I um, after doing the food associated with with Kwanzaa piece uh, for the Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America, I there were a bunch of unassigned entries, and they were like, oh this was great. You want to do anything else? And I was like, maybe. Uh, and I looked at the list of unassigned entries. And I, when I tell you the word rum jumped off the page and said to me, you will write me. I was just like, oh, oh okay. And I was trying to avoid it because I'm like, I'm, I don't have West Indian heritage that I'm aware of. I'm sure I've got DNA. So just so our audience is aware that Tanya is experiencing some, has been experiencing internet issues today. So we apologize yeah, for that. Yeah, is it my do. connection? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you, you, you froze Sorry. again. Sorry. You're good, you're good. You're good, you're fine. I think after watching like okay. news stations right. for the last two years on Zoom, we're all kind of used to it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not that yeah. big of a deal. So you got a lot of people that's like commenting and one of our, um, he was actually a cousin of ours. So this, he said, turnips come mm -hmm. out of Europe, out of Europe, but we love turnips and mustard greens one to one in McCormick, South Carolina. So, I mean, does turnip greens come out of Europe or is it something else that we need to know? Cause I'm a collard greens fan personally. Yeah, I'm a mixed green fan. I like turnips. I love mustards. Um, no, I'm. I think mustards actually. There is there is a version of them that 
uh, are, are coming out of. Um, I'd have y'all got have me grabbing my African ethnobotany, but I I am not a walking encyclopedia. And some of the stuff I've researched, you know, 10, 15, you know, five, four, you know, years ago. But um, you know, you start getting into genus species of things, and there are many different variations of things like alliums. Is that what they're called? The onion, garlic. They they grow all over the world. You know, there's there are things that, but different versions of it. And I think that's the same case with the mustard green. But can I just finish that thought about the about the rum? The reason I brought that up is because what I discovered was the business model of the sugar industry was um, that that was the engine behind the transatlantic slave trade. That's what kept it going because the lifespan of a person working in the sugarcane fields whether it was the sugar islands in the Caribbean or Brazil, parts of, of, of North South America, was three years. So because of the work conditions, people, whether it was the extremely dangerous conditions, it, it was a it was a, a very it's a reed that can cut you, plus there's a lot of uh, machetes involved, there's burning involved, there's mosquitoes, there's malaria, there's dehydration, there's overwork, there's heat exertion, all these things. Three years. This is one of the first times I've been able to talk about this without um, choking up. So instead of so, unlike in North America, where it became profitable to, um, I need a better verb than breed, but to to participate in increasing the population of your enslaved people in Virginia um, is is the greatest case of that. Um, in in other parts of uh, the slave societies of the New World their solution was just keep shipping people over here. So in that case, that answers your question, Brian, of not caring about the life, caring about a solution that they perceive to get the end result for to feed the sweet, the growing sweet tooth so that people could put tea, sugar in their tea and have biscuits as the British say, which is their word for cookies. And it's, 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 um, and it's heartbreaking. It's, it's all that, all of that. But so when you when you learned that that was actually part of the model, the answer is like they didn't care. Um, but you, you look at the survival, the miraculous, not miraculous, but sometimes near miraculous. You look at how people still were able to, in certain enslaved societies, live to 113, 112, 107, you know, roughly, but but people were, the, the face of the American cent, cent, uh, centenarian was you you or me for a really long time. And still, start paying attention when you, you hear the news about the oldest person dying. I, more often than not, it's an old black woman and sometimes an old black man. And it's like, well, how did that happen? How were people living to be so, living so long under those harsh conditions? All these terms that we, that marketers want to trend up now, eating seasonally, farm to table, plant-based, primarily plant-based diet, you know, meat in small, just for seasoning and flavor versus it being the centerpiece. These are all things that African-Americans were the pioneers of, and as well as eating the leafy greens. It's always interesting to me that people are quick to point out that collards come from these places, but there's no archaeological, there's no research to support that they actually ate them. Um, that it was part of their cuisine, but that instead they were using it for feed, for, for animal feed and stuff, um, those cruciferous. We were the mm -hmm. ones who turned them into culinary delights. And you also did a very, an excellent job in the, um, the video that I saw 
And again, it got me thinking about food in a, in a different way. Now, you know, Donnie and I talk about the fact that our Edgefield family is huge. And the reason why it's huge is because our ancestors and their relations were having double-digit double kids every single generation. You gave a very practical example, though, of slaughtering a chicken to feed a family. So if you've got, if you have two adults, you may have an elderly parent living in the household, other relations, and you have six or seven kids, that chicken's only going to go so far. And you need those chickens because you need the eggs. You actually need the eggs more than you need to eat the chicken. But, you know, you have an old chicken, you slaughter it. Well, that's only going to feed so many people. That's not going to really fill your belly. And you, I thought you did a really wonderful job explaining how all of our side dishes kind of came into being to supplement the protein that they were getting from the meat. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you for that. God, even that, I'm like, when did I, where was I? Who was I talking to? <laughs> I was talking to the Belgian chef. Where we at a, where were we? Were we in Harlem? Um, yeah, so, right. And if and when that chicken got, that old hen, that old, whatever, that old bird got, got uh, killed, plucked, it was more often than not going to go into a pot, right? Where mm -hmm. that meat can stretch out, not literally stretch out, but fall off the bone after simmering. So everybody gets a little bit of the protein. When you start getting into this, like one whole, you know, a whole chicken breast, like unheard of, you know, even the wing would have been a whole lot of meat for somebody, for one person, you know, um, the wing split. So, so, so that's another thing that's really interesting to me in terms of like re-remembering, refinding old lost, um, food philosophies and, and ways to think about things in terms of um, individualistic and, and over the top and, and not gluttonous, but just kind of over, like, just, just um, ostentatious. Is that the word? Just like, just a display of, you know, like just over the top versus like a communally minded, like, how are we all going to eat this not just today, but tomorrow and the next day. Um, but yeah, uh, and, and there's even there's even a, a um, an origination of the modern chicken to what was called the guinea hen that came out of um, a bird that comes comes that's part of us being here and it coming here and coming turning into the the chicken that we know today in terms of um, being the cultivators of chickens and users of the of eggs and things like that. Um, but yeah, you know, you start to think about, and that would have been a very special occasion for, for, uh, and, and honestly, there's, there's some indication that this fried chicken that is a gift to the world, you know, one of the greatest delicacies ever created uh, by the hands of black cooks was, Amen. Amen. yes, but I, you know, I hope I don't get somebody to try to revoke my black heart right now, but ultimately, originally that was a, that just based on what I just described, a platter of fried chicken, that would have been not something that we would have had access to enjoying until later, until when we, when we incorporated into our special, our holidays, our special occasions. Now people are like, fried chicken, special occasion. Well, I can eat it three times a day if I want, right? No, once upon a time, that was like, that never would have happened. And, and it was something that, you know, becomes this delicacy that is presented. We have to think about 
the role, the, the critical role that we played, and it's not even just bifurcated, sometimes it's trifurcated, our food roles, the foods that, that we that we perfected and made, hence, hence that tasting thing, right? You know, if you got caught putting their utensils in your mouth or like, can you imagine? But you're also responsible for making sure it's seasoned perfectly and blah, 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 like rocking a hard place, right? So of course you find ways to make sure you do it because that food's not for you. You're not going to, you're not sitting down to enjoy that. You're going to go back and you're going to pick the leaves, the edible, nutritious leaves that they're not even eating yet. <laughs> you know, depending on what century we're in, which is why folks are living to 113 over here. Folks are dying at 35 over here, you know, with their cookies and biscuits and, you know, whatever. I, I digress. Did I even answer the question? What yes. <laughs> you did. You answered it. I have a question. I have a question. Um, since you went into the, you know, the fact about chicken and that was something that we really didn't receive like that, it was a, a more of a delicacy. Let's get into pork and how, because, you Ooh. know, people are grossed out about chitlins and pig feet and, you know, so let's, let's get into something like that. Was that something that was in Africa at one point or was it just the scraps, as everyone said? that was thrown to them and they had to make do? That's a real complicated answer. The first answer is no, the pig is not uh, native to Africa. Um, I should know where he or she is native to and that will come to me. But the point is there were other game. So it's about thinking about things in terms of the same way the greens may not have been exactly been the same. The animals may not have exactly been the same. But um, the, the European cultures who settled here and enslaved people and brought them here had cultivated the pig. It had become very much a part of, and not just Europeans, the pig was a big deal in China, uh, you know, and still is. And, you know, it's, it's got its place in different uh, food cultures around the world. Um, uh, and and um, so, yes, that, that became... But there's, it's interesting, there, there have been archaeological digs done in the South where they find more beef bones um, in the areas where, where uh, Black and safe people would have lived, which I, I thought was interesting. Um, more beef bones than, than pork. So, I mean, it just, you know, it depends on the farmer and what they cultivated. But for us, we were doing the butchering for them and for their fine meals or, or whatever. Um, and yes, there were... You know, it, it, there's a term high on the hog literally means like, you know, you know, what's left by the time. And, and, and a part of that is that dynamic, that that relationship where there are accounts where um, people's animal labor would get more meat or protein. And I'm talking like dogs and whatever, than then they would reserve for enslaved people. They also knew that um, people were hunting and fishing and foraging. We had to, we had, we had to, our ancestors had to make do from day one because they could not have relied on scraps from master's table, which is just a sliver of the narrative. And I'm not even sure that that's as big, plays as big a role as we think it does. Rations, yes, because the, the slave system was a system, and to your point, Brian, they had to make sure that they kept people alive. 
you know, they had to give them calories. They were not thinking about whether the nutrition, they barely knew about nutrition for themselves. Let's be honest. Um, we're talking about cultures that, you know, showed up with, you know, I, 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 I'm not trying to be, you know, snarky or whatever, but cheese, bread, and I'm at a loss for a lot of other stuff in terms of like, when you when you look at tubers and and rice and and the amount of seafood that that um that is part of the culture of African Americans today that are coming from a coastal people that are also brought to primarily um, coastal regions and regions with estuaries and rivers and and you know there's there are a lot of things that nutritionally. Our adoption of the yam, the sweet, the sweet potato, not the yam. The yam is an African tuber that did not really make its way here, but the sweet potato looked like the yam, and so, and it turns out that's much more nutritious than than um, white potatoes and 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 certain types of breads and stuff. So the things that we adopted, um, you know, they call them superfoods. You turn on to these blue zone specials on PBS, and I'm like, where is the, you know. What do you want to call us? Negro, Black, African American, Afro American. You know, I don't want to call it the slave diet because that would be just ridiculous. But my point is that there are points in time where, um, nutritionally, because of our own doing, our own supplementation, our own, we uh, the diet was healthier in some ways than modern African American diets. Not everywhere. You can't speak for everyone, but that that kind of blows my mind too. Thank you. I, I needed to know that because I like chitlins. So. <laughs> oh, I'm not mad at chitlins either. So, you know, not, yeah. That's another example of turning literally nothing that anybody wanted into something. Into something. Became a delicacy. And knowing how to do that, because there's, there's health implications too. With right, that. right. Back right. to the cleanliness, back to making sure they're cleaned properly, right? properly, back salted properly. Salt and vinegar are antimicrobial, anti antibacterial agents in addition to flavor agents. So there's a science and an art to cooking. That, yeah, we uh, got a lot of chefs in um that's on here, and they're putting it out there. Our cousin Oded, he's he he coming with it. He was like, "Oh, the pig was from Europe too, and or Europe for Asia, and the steer was in um Africa. He, the longhorn steer. Oh yeah, so they they coming with it. I love it. I love it. But our barbecue techniques, you know, Michael Twitty's done a lot of research on this, and I believe Adrian Miller has a whole book out about it. But they're they're they, they both illuminate totally different things. And um, the stuff that Twitty points out in terms of the game animals and how they were prepared and cooked were adapted to um, American barbecue style, which which more often than not was pork. So, um, yeah. So you guys are cousins? So I, yeah, I want to hear, what's this say? Is this a question? Or a comment? Oh. Tony, you're, oh, you're, you're muted. Sorry. She said, recall the former enslaved man, the peas, the beans, the turnips, the potatoes, all seasoned up, meats and sometimes a ham bone, was cooked in a big iron kettle, and when mealtime come, they all gathered around the pot for plenty of helping. This took place at noon or whenever the field slaves were given a break from work. At the day's end, some semblance of family dinner would be prepared by a wife or mother in individual cabins, the diets high in fat and starch were and starch were not nutrition. 
Mm-hmm. That's debatable whether or not they were, for them it was nutritious because when you're exerting that um, th- that amount of calories yeah. and energy, it's an energy exchange. So that was absolutely nutritious. Fat is not the bad guy. I do not believe in this industrial system, Western diet lie. Our brains are primarily fat. Fat is good. Fats are important. And there's even, you know, you know, that's the thing. We live in a society that you literally could argue either side. You know, I think I saw butter is back on the health food list. Like eggs, eggs fall on and off the health. You know, is it healthy? Are they not healthy? Butter, da, da, da. lard. Wait, remember when they told us coconut oil? Remember when they told us that saturated fats or however it was positioned, like you were supposed to avoid those tropical oils like the plague. Remember? It was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay. Tropical oils that grow primarily in black and brown societies, cultures, regions, whatever. How expensive is is coconut oil now? People are eating yeah. it by the spoonfuls. They're using it for everything because it was never unhealthy. And and the same thing. And so so those so the and and people who are returning more to plant-based, but there's a whole nother camp that that um you know they came up with Crisco instead of lard because it was like oh that's terrible lard nope lard's not so bad it turns out now you got to respect people's preferences for like pork no pork you know whether it's religious or or whatever but it turns out um there are arguments for the health benefits of using lard <laughs> I'm not telling you. I'm just saying. No, that, like, I'm just saying you just because I thought you was gonna put pork in there because I was gonna hear my mother's mouth afterwards because she's watching the show and she's gonna like, could you go fry me a pork chop, please? And stop <laughs> trying to take it from me. Oops. So my sister gonna that's gonna be between her and my sister. I don't have nothing to do with that. And even the starches, a lot of those starches were high fiber. You gotta look at we're not talk process. See, there's a difference between refined flours. Starches, which have only been in the human diet for I don't know 200, 250 years, that's not a very long time. That's 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 like over processing, milling, grinding these fine white flowers that are like talcum powder in your mouth. That that's a high load of no fiber. There's not a lot in there, right? A a starch that comes in the form of a tuber or a bread food or a plantain or even certain forms of, of rice that some are higher in, uh, in um, you know, the grain and the fat. It just all, it's all relative. It's not that simple. So carbs and fats are not, not nutritious. So the thing, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm thing... on a box. Please, please get me off. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I'm loving is our people are sharing their kind of family practices. So there is Kathy Mullinsay. So she's like, I know about the chicken. The younger you were, the smaller or the lesser piece you received. Sharon McAllister is saying the chicken neck was a delicacy for <gasps> our families. Sharon, my long lost sister, cousin. I loved, loved, <laughs> loved. Oh my goodness. My job, my, my little my sous chef job with my grandmother was dicing up the giblets and the neck and the heart all the yes. stuff. Yes. Like in hindsight, I'm like, how old was I with that knife? Like top chapter services. But like, but then I'm like, think about our ancestors. The the, the the children were right in there helping, whatever. That's right. And and it's it's a gift to me to this day that I know my mm. way around, you know, but oh the the neck, yeah. The, oh but I, that's I, how I'm that's, that's how I make gravy. 
That's how oh, I make gravy to this day. That is how I make gravy. That's the only way to make gravy. That's the only way. Exactly. Give me gravy during Thanksgiving is everything. It's everything. Wait, where, where, where y'all? I'm coming. I'm gonna invite myself to yeah, because nobody makes it. I can't. You can't. You gotta ask. You gotta go to butchers now to get the. Mm -hmm. Get that stuff. Like you buy a chicken, even a whole chicken, and that's they've taken yeah. it out. I don't know where the stuff is going. No, I'm look, gonna... let me tell you something. Every Thanksgiving or Christmas, one of my favorite things to do is to cut up celery and onions and put it in the pot because it's going to give me that smell the that aromatic. I need. And then it's going and then throw chop them and boil them giblets <gasps> and then chop them. Think, girl, what? Don't play with me. I told you. I told you. I'm a connoisseur of cooking. I clearly, got, I do my thing. Clearly, because it's all about thinking thing. through how you're gonna get flavor at every step. And that's Baby. tough. Like people, people are like, ugh, ugh. But guess what? Now the latest craze is collagen. We don't get enough collagen in our diets anymore. Why don't we get enough collagen in our diets anymore? People stopped eating liver and the, the giblet gravy. I don't know where those innards are going. Maybe they're sending it to the cat food factory or something because, you know, which, which is good because they need to eat that stuff too. But it's like we, society changes, you know, decides that something, and then you got to go chase it down until like you can't even chase it down. I, so, I, 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 mean, I, will, I will fry me some chicken gizzards. I sure oh, will. Yes, ma'am. I have a cousin who, this is, I have to put this up here. She says, my dinner list is ready, Donya. And looks, <laughs> and looks like pork chops are going to be added. Let me tell you, every time I cook something, she puts up there, put that on my list. Because I'll put the paste, I'll put a picture of it up. And she was like, put that on my list. Put that on my list. So yeah, we. we, we I mean, I gotta tell you, the the pig, the, the pork industry has cleaned up its act, um, and now the one we got to be careful about is people thought they were eating cleaner by eating chicken, and oh my goodness, the 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 white meat chicken thing. I I'm I'm I'm, I'm I've had it. I I'm I'm just like I can't I can't with the skinless, boneless, chicken breast trend. It's, dry. it's like when is that going to end? Because you know, and, and people do seem to be discovering thighs and, and legs and dark meat, which has all the flavor. But um, but uh, the point is, what was the point I was making, y'all? The point, oh, the chicken industry. So chicken is like the number one protein that is consumed in, in the United States. And once something becomes a thing, like where the machine is just cranking it out, you got to be suspicious if it's too cheap, but then it, but then it's also you get used to it being like chicken shouldn't be this expensive because then when you had to go buy the free range, you know, organic, whole, air chill, whatever, and I'm like, you want how much for that chicken, you know? But you can taste the difference, and where I am here in New York, sometimes you can have access to halal chickens butchered different ways, different culture, and you really do taste. It's like, oh. This is what it's almost like you time travel to taste what chicken really tastes like versus mm -hmm. something that has been too that's too far along on the um in the industrial system. So pork, you know, has has clean, you know, it's all in cycles. But what I'm what I'm saying is just wherever we can make conscientious choices, part of what's driving the vegan trend and the vegetarian trend, which has roots, uh, uh black food culture roots, vegetarian especially. Um, also, of course, Indian, but um, what's driving that is that the 
the meat practices are just foul, you know, pun intended. And um, to the point where there are serious health implications. It's not, it's not like when we hunted and the one thing and you ate that and then you didn't eat it again, you didn't until you hunted again a couple of months later. With this much volume and stuff, you, you just have to be careful. But it's not about individual choices. I, I wish we could find ways to to change our our ways or the collective ways of culture and society that we are part of. My guess, and it's just a guess, is that if more people actually grew or raised their own food, because I'm toying with the idea of getting chickens, no roosters, because my neighbors would go bonkers. I live in the suburbs. Roosters would not go down well, but chickens are quiet. The hens are quieter. I'm actually contemplating getting um getting hens, you no know, egg layers, and um, I'm not. I'd like to get some that you know could be, but you know could be butchered, um, but definitely at least getting the egg layers. Wow. Because my relationship with food, my relationship with food has really changed since COVID. I've had a COVID garden, so this is going into almost year three. My relationship with kind of judging fresh food. And you want to talk about low food mileage. I just go to my backyard, go to the raised beds, pick what I need, and that's part of my dinner. It, it's awesome. It really is. It's, it's like magical, I'm sure. It's like, because it's like, yeah, there is a, it is a bounty and abundance if, if you know how to, you know, grow things. Get green He's thumb. doing his thing because he made me a little baby watermelon and, it, I, and I loved it. I, I loved it. It was absolutely delicious. I, it was He's doing it. My grandfather used to grow watermelon. What was it? The um lettuce as well that you made? Because it was perfect for my salad. Oh, the butter, the butter, yeah, the butter lettuce and the arugula. I love arugula and I love lettuce. I love leaves, edible leaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are almost out of time, Tanya. I am so so glad that. Oh my goodness! Wow. I know. I don't want you to leave when we get off. Um, Brian, you want to tell him? Or I could tell him about next week's show. Next mm -hmm. week's show is with my girl, Yaya, um, Yael Gordon. We're going to go back to that. You guys remember the last time when she was up there and she was talking about those Louisiana slave plantations where she's going to dig deeper into it. And she's going to talk about, guess what, Tanya Sugar Canes, just like what you were just talking about on oh, that wow. show. And her, you can't miss that show. That show is going to be awesome. So we are really excited about that. But again, Tanya, we have to keep in touch. Do not hang up. And, no, um, I won't. And I wish I, I had got to tell you guys about the food family tree segment we're developing in the uh, savory and sweet show, because based on your, the, your cousins and the people posting things, it sounds like there's something there in terms of mapping out family trees with the, you the can people come back who, and talk about that and grow. That would be great. Yes. Yeah, so. Or if it's something that the the audience can tune into or listen to, shoot us a link and we will we will put it out through our network. Yes, I've already been put. I've been putting it up. Um, she's yeah. with Word. What is it? Word Word dot com radio or wordradio.com. Yes, and well, um, you can also go to at the food Rio, but um, yeah, the food family tree thing. Actually, want to have more conversations with uh, genealogists. I am not a genealogist, but um, we'll we'll talk. We'll we'll keep the conversation going. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we're a minute out. So this, I'm Donya, and I'm so glad you guys um, joined us today. 
I'm Brian. Equally happy you guys shared your, shared your Sunday afternoon with us. And looking forward to seeing you 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here. All right. Bye, guys. Stay on, Tanya. Bye-bye.